Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Good to have you on board, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings per year. As plans start as low as $20 a month, learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. Okay, let's get the show started. So a few people have told me recently that we are long overdue to have some Coast Guard folks on the show, and they're right. So my guest today is Rear Admiral Doug Fears, U.S. Coast Guard retired, joining us from his home at the eastern shore of Maryland. Admiral Fears enlisted in the Coast Guard in 1982. He was appointed to the Coast Guard Academy in 1985. He graduated from the Coast Guard Academy in 1989, and he was a career cutterman. He commanded three cutters, including the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton, a national security cutter. He served in the White House as director for Central America and the Caribbean on the National Security Council staff. And he was the director of Joint Interagency Task Force South in Key West, Florida from 2020 till 2022. He also previously served as the chairman of the Naval Institute's editorial board. Admiral Fears, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Bill. Thank you for your hospitality and having me on the podcast today. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing here at the Naval Institute. Well, I enjoyed meeting you at the uh, the superintendent's house at the Naval Academy back in October. Uh, you were there and then at the Naval Institute the next day for the history conference that we had on uh, Russia-China, their burgeoning relationship and is it or isn't it a uh, an alliance and, and what does that portend for the world? That was a great conference uh, and I, we've had some other folks on the show that uh, were either there and, and talked on panels, uh, but that was a great event. And um, and so you and I, it was the first time I'd met you. We talked a little bit about your last tour uh, of active duty in the Coast Guard. We, you, you commanded the Joint Interagency Task Force, at, at, which is in Key West, Florida. So for our listeners who perhaps are not too, you know, super familiar with the counter-drug mission or with Jayatif South, as it's called, uh, talk a little bit about that for a minute, what the mission is and what some of the challenges are in the, the counter-drug mission in the South. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Bill. I, I think um, the easiest way to describe it is it's, it's a command that counters uh, the flow of narcotics from Latin America, uh, principally into the United States, but also into Europe and into the uh, Indo-PACOM uh, area of responsibility. And we do that by partnering with uh, a bunch of different uh, like-minded partner nations. And so uh, JADF South is charged with detection and monitoring of these illicit flows. And these are done under Title 10 authority. So it's a Defense Department organization and task force. And then we work in concert with partner nations and the United States Coast Guard for interdiction and apprehension. And so if you look at it in a continuum, you detect, then you monitor, then you interdict, and then you apprehend. And so interdiction and apprehension is inherently a law enforcement mission. And so uh, when we have a United States endgame, the United States Coast Guard is the agency that does that. Uh, the United States Navy participates in that as well. Uh, many times you'll have a Coast Guard law enforcement detachment on a Navy littoral combat ship uh, or in, in the old days when we did this, uh, the old frigates, um, Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates. 
So uh, the, the Navy's been a longstanding partner in this mission space, but our partners range uh, across the spectrum. We have some Five Eyes partners. Uh, so on the one end of the spectrum, we've got the Brits, uh, the French, the Dutch, uh, the Spaniards, uh, some of those European partners that have Caribbean interests. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Central American countries, uh, Belize, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, Costa Rica, Panama, so on and so forth. And so it's a tactical mission space, I would argue, with strategic effect. And we can talk more about that later if you'd like. Uh, talk for a second, if you will, because it's, you know, the title is Joint Interagency. So talk about your interagency partners as well. DEA, is there FBI, uh, Customs and Border Protection? What are the different interagency partners that are that are represented there at Gyatta South and also across the mission space? Yeah, so um, I, I think the name would be uh, more precise if we called it the Joint Interagency International Task Force. Uh, but to your point about interagency partners, absolutely, we have uh, members of the intelligence community, um, myriad uh, members of the intelligence community. Uh, we've got the FBI, the DEA, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, Customs and Border Protection, um, State Department. There are many partners around the U.S. interagency. And so that's one of the powerful things about the way that it's organized is you might only have three or four or five people from a particular agency, but they're senior enough that they can reach back into the agency and, and leverage uh, bigger things that can be as, of assistance to us in, in executing the mission. Uh, gotcha. So uh, how's it going? You know, I mean, we, we, we hear on the one hand, you know, from time to time, you, you get EPA or Coast Guard, you know, apprehended 100 tons of, you know, you fill in the, 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 the drug of choice of the day, right? You know, some number of tons, which just seems like a massive haul um, that should have a big impact on, you know, the drug supply in the United States. And then on the other hand, you know, you hear things like, uh, you know, the number of Americans dying of fentanyl over, you know, overdoses and, and the drug addiction problem and the and the cost of the street cost of the value of drugs is, you know, oftentimes not changed by those large interdictions. So, um, you know, from your perspective, what, what what's going well in the CD mission, the counter drug mission, you know, and what what needs to change? And perhaps, you know, that's more assets or perhaps it's different laws or perhaps it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you have a lot of ideas having worked in it. Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. I, I think, well, first of all, uh, the history of the Joint Interagency Task Force South goes back to the late 1980s. <clears throat> and if you recall during President Reagan's tenure as the president and Vice President George H.W. Bush at the time uh, was in charge of focusing on the problem of drugs. Uh, if you remember back to the 1980s and we remember movies like uh, Scarface that, that had some basis in fact uh, about the conditions in South Florida and the drug kingpins that were operating. And, and so it was, it was a national problem that required the attention of the federal government. And so we organized back then as uh, what was then called Joint Task Force 4. And over time, we've evolved into the Joint Interagency Task Force South. And I won't get into all the details of that other than to say that we've grown and we've got more partners than we've ever had. And so uh, 
I think the Reagan administration did this mission space a disservice by referring to it as the war on drugs, mm. uh, because that implies that wars can be won or lost. And uh, and then you have these metrics uh, that don't really capture the enduring nature of transnational criminal organizations and counter narcotics as a mission space. And so one of the things we've had to fight within the Coast Guard is when you talk to Coast Guard people, we, we many times refer to the 11 statutory missions. And so the law requires us to focus on these 11 statutory missions. Uh, and because of things like the Government Performance and Results Act, which I think was circa 1993-ish, uh, we agreed with Congress and the Office of Management and Budget which things we were going to measure in those things we were statutorily required to do. So in the mission space of counter narcotics, we begin to measure things that are easily measured. The number of interdictions, the quantities of cocaine, uh, the numbers of people apprehended. Uh, and so we have to be able to measure those in real time in order to be able to report them in real time. And so uh, as part of the budget process, those government performance and results act metrics uh, have to be rolled up with a budget submission to justify uh, the budget request. Interesting. And so we get mindset. Uh, I, I've many times said that I, I think we torture ourselves over some of these metrics uh, when that's really not the big picture. And so where do interdictions and apprehensions fit into uh, what the desired excuse me, desired national outcome is in this mission space? Well, we want to interdict drugs because that's a felony if, uh, offense. And then when we've got people, we can investigate and take down people. And so in the investigatory and prosecution phases of this mission space, uh, the investigators very professionally will get more information, more intelligence so that we can, can feed the, what we call the cycle of success. Um, but ultimately, uh, you get lawyers that, that get these guys sentenced. And uh, there's an organized crime drug enforcement task force uh, in in uh, central Florida, in the middle district of Florida, that focuses on air and maritime cases, principally maritime cases. Uh, and it's called Panama Express. And they're connected to the U.S. attorney in the middle district of Florida. And Panama Express uh, probably convicts around 300 drug traffickers every year. And uh, the average sentence for one of those drug traffickers is 20 to 25 years. Wow. And so it's been a highly successful partnership. And so let me back out one step further uh, when we're talking about the mission here. As long as we are a country who's focused on the rule of law, and as long as our desired national outcome in this space is to bring people to justice, this is the way the mission must be executed. Uh, are there improvements on the margins that one can make? Sure. And we try to do that every day uh, and all the partners do. But I'll give you an example of one investigation that, that caught national attention a number of years ago. But uh, when El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord, uh, was taken down, that was an investigation that was ongoing for around 10 or 12 years. And so that's not satisfying as a metric. However, hundreds of J. Out of South drug cases, hundreds, fed into the investigation that enabled the investigators to take down El Chapo. 
And so, uh, again, that's a desired national outcome when you take these bad guys down. And that's not to say more bad guys don't pop up behind them, but this is the idea behind law enforcement. If there is no consequence to breaking the law, then you're going to have more lawbreakers. And so um, when we try to reinforce what our partners are doing in their countries, their legal systems, their ability to enforce the law, their ability to to prosecute people and convict them and, and sentence them. Uh, these are the things that we're trying to uh, exemplify. And a lot of what the State Department, State Department colleagues focus on in these countries is trying to help our partner nations uh, mature these institutions so that they can have uh, freedom and democracy as we, as we know it. Rule of law. No, sir, that's a, that, that's a great response. And while you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, to your point about the, the Reagan administration might have done a disservice to the, the, the problem set, the mission set, by calling it a war on drugs. You know, we, we don't call it a war on crime. We call it law enforcement. Right. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it is it's an ongoing thing. You're never going to get rid of all crime. You're never going to. But you got to you have to go at it methodically, systematically every day. Um, it's like cut flowers, as, as my boss likes to say, you know, it's something or, or mowing the lawn. Right. You got to keep doing it. That's a, that's a great. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think it, it's that enduring feature that people need to get their heads around because when we count drugs or we count the numbers of people that we've arrested and all those sorts of things, that's a measurement, but that's not the most meaningful measurement. Uh, and so it's important on the one hand to understand as a program manager, for example, uh, that you have to count drugs. And so you, you brought up uh, fentanyl earlier, uh, and that's really kind of a scourge in our country. The JADF South organization uh, organized around cocaine flow because cocaine is, is uh, grown and manufactured in uh, only a certain part of uh, the Andean region in South America. And so we know where it's grown and we know where it comes from generally. Uh, fentanyl is a different problem set and not principally JADF South's focus because a lot of precursor chemicals come into places like Mexico from China, Got right? It. And then they're manufactured in Mexico and then they come across the border. In some cases, precursor chemicals come across the border. And so uh, this is one of those things I think that the Chinese, um, I don't know if they turn a blind eye to it, or it's just kind of intentional to, to be something that undermines our population stability in our own society. So those things come in containerized or bulk cargo. Uh, but most of the cocaine that we see uh, comes in non-commercial conveyances like what we call go fast boats or sure. self-propelled semi-submersibles. And so we have a highly motivated adversary running dark and asymmetric targets against us trying to avoid detection and monitoring every single day. It's, uh, and we can get into this a little bit later, but during my tenure as the JAD of South director, um, I engaged the defense innovation organizations uh, to say, use us as a battle laboratory. And so the idea behind that is uh, the, the defense department can experiment in this JAD of South mission set, set on, on air and maritime targets in particular uh, and you can make mistakes because it's not generally a kinetic environment. The adversary doesn't generally shoot back at us because they know that we'll neutralize the threat if they shoot at us. And so 
you're able to experiment with things, uh, understanding that you have a highly motivated, uh, well-financed adversary who's running dark and asymmetric targets. And so uh, the Navy, for example, through the Office of Naval Research, uh, is operating their Project Scout in concert with Jay out of South because it helps them develop, uh, do their research and development projects in a place that is is less risky than, say, the South China Sea or the Arabian Gulf. That's a good point. And a preview of coming attraction, we're working on the January issue of proceedings right now. We've got an article by two Coast Guard officers who say that the, the CD mission is one that the Navy should not give up, right? That it should keep investing its time, its people, the ships in because of the, the, the opportunity to learn in a real world environment, right? You've got, you've, you've got an adversary who is adapting uh, you, you're running operations all the time. You're at sea. You've got a, you know, uh, it's an interesting environment. It's one that uh, provides a, uh, you know, real world leadership opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty good piece. Yeah. Well, and, and the Navy has a, a one star admiral at Jad of South. Uh, admiral Larry Legree is the guy who's the incumbent. Um, and he's a surface warfare officer. He's also a nuclear, uh, nuclear surface uh, guy. But I would argue, and, and we did, uh, Admiral Scott Serretta uh, was my deputy during my tenure, and he's now the uh, commander of the standing NATO Maritime Group number two over the Mediterranean Sea. Mm, okay. and Scott and I used to talk about this all the time, uh, but it's important whether the Navy is contributing uh, ships or aircraft to understand that you're actually increasing readiness by doing this mission. Yeah. And you're increasing readiness because you're still stepping through. And I, and I spent four years of my career assigned to Navy units, including two years uh, back during Desert Storm. To, uh, I was on two different guided missile cruisers, uh, one as a fire control officer and, and one as a combat information center officer. So I, I understand that this, this idea of the detect to engage sequence is part of the Navy's warfighting skills and, and any of the services warfighting skills. And you're able to do that in the air and maritime domains. And so when you're on a ship and you're conducting these operations, you're launching and recovering small boats routinely. Uh, you're deploying visit board search and seizure sorts of people uh, in this environment. You're launching and recovering aircraft. You're coordinating with maritime patrol aircraft. Uh, and again, you've got a highly motivated, well-financed, dark and asymmetric uh, adversary that's trying to operate around you and your job is to go find them and interdict. Them. And so those skills apply regardless of what mission space you're in. If the problem is wet, uh, <laughs> the, the solution includes detect to engage. Right? Yeah. Uh, our, our online audience. Uh, so Harry Lyme makes the point, if I was going to date myself, I would say I watched Miami vice and I'm, I'm in that cohort as well. And Cooper M. asks a question, how much does government corruption at worst or government indifference at best in Mexico impact Coast Guard missions? Yeah, I, I think, and, and not just to pick on uh, our Mexican partners, but I think uh, corruption is a feature of all of our partners. And so, um, you know, I'm reminded recently, even, even with mature partners, uh, the British are struggling right now in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, with corruption and some of the leadership down there. And so, uh, yes, it affects um, the corruption and some of these governments affect our operations. That said, I will tell you that the Mexicans are our stalwart partners as our, our Central American partners, as our uh, European partners. And so they come to work dressed out and ready to play every day. 
to make a contribution. And so if we can, if we can, if you want to use a exercise metaphor, if you can do more sets and reps with greater weights, i.e. use your law enforcement capability, use your detection and monitoring capability, your armed forces, uh, use your investigatory skills, use your prosecution skills uh, for maintenance of the rule of law, I think that you're always going to have some improvement in what it is that we do. But it's a good question, Cooper. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to uh, another topic I wanted to talk about, and it's also one of those enduring missions, and and, and that gets to leadership, which is uh, important at all, at all levels of our careers, at, you know, whether you're uh, level leading at the strategic level as you were at Jayat of South, or you're leading at the tactical level as a you know VBSS officer on a cutter or you know a Navy ship. Um, but, but I, I want to ask this question because uh, it's one that I often sort of ask myself, right? Um, so you had command of three cutters. You also commanded you know Jayat of South. You, you worked at the White House. What would Rear Admiral Fears tell Lieutenant J.G. Fears or Ensign Fears uh, about leadership if he had the chance? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I, I, I would. So one of the influencers in my life is uh, an author by the name of C.S. Lewis, and uh, many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis and some of his works. But uh, he delivered a speech to the King's College back in the late 1940s, I think 48 or 49, um, and and this this crop of King's College students were about to graduate and enter the working world. And so as a moralist, as a Christian, uh, he was able to communicate with them what he thought was most important. And so this speech is called The Inner Ring. And uh, you can Google it, C.S. Lewis, The Inner Ring. I'll check it out. Um, take you about 45 minutes to read it. Uh, I would tell you that I've probably read that speech 70 or 80 times over the years. And I've given it to every wardroom, everybody that sailed with me. Uh, probably since I was a lieutenant commander, I uh, got a copy of that speech. So in that speech, um, and it's very thick academic uh, English um, prose, in that speech, he cautions people to pursue the inner ring as a motivator, right? It, it, I want to get in the inner ring. So uh, what he tells you in, in the course of this speech is that uh, this inner ring concept is perpetual. And so you can enter the inner ring and the inner ring is designed to keep people out. So you seek to become one of the people in the inner ring. Well, what, once you get inside the inner ring, you discover there's another inner ring inside the inner ring. And, and this perpetual feature uh, never really gets you anywhere except inside an inner ring. Instead, he, he uh, suggests that one focus on becoming a sound craftsman. And I love this idea because uh, the way Lewis describes it in his speech, when you become a sound craftsman, you find yourself in an inner ring that you didn't seek to belong to. Mm. And you find yourself in an inner ring of other sound craftsmen because sound craftsmen can identify each other. Right. And so you find yourself in this space where people are really good at what they do. And so what Admiral Fears would tell Lieutenant Junior Grade Fears is focus on becoming a sound craftsman and those elements that make you really good at what you do, because then you become an indispensable teammate. Uh, you become more capable of, of leading. Uh, and with that, I think it's important to remain perpetually curious and teachable. 
And so if you have a teachable spirit, I think you're able to continue to improve on your craftsmanship. And so these things, we don't get them overnight. Uh, they're derived from years of hard work and rolling up your sleeves and doing hard things. Uh, and then they build. And so we'll, we'll all make mistakes along the way. But the, but the point here is not to avoid mistakes or hard things um, because that's how we learn. Right. And so I, that's, that's probably at the core of what I would tell Lieutenant Junior Grade Fears. I like it. I'll have to look up that C.S. Lewis uh, speech. It's not, not one that I've, one of his pieces that I've read before. It's a good um, so, uh, you know, news late last year, I guess it was or earlier this year was, uh, you know, the, the release of the tri-service maritime strategy, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Advantage uh, at Sea, it's called, uh, about sea service integration. Some of the things that are happening there, particularly with regard to the Coast Guard is, you know, the Coast Guard's doing, from my perspective, more of the long endurance, far overseas missions you know, including in proceedings and USNI news highlighted over the last couple of years, you know, Coast Guard cutter uh, transits of the Taiwan Strait, Coast Guard cutter deployments to Seventh Fleet. Uh, of course, you know, we, we, I think most of us know and on our staff right now, we've got a Coast Guard officer, uh, Lieutenant Commander Steve Hulse, who just came back from patrol forces Southwest Asia, where he commanded one of those uh, offshore patrol cutters that is based in Bahrain that's doing all this work for Fifth Fleet. So I'm just curious your perspective of that, you know, that strategy, the, the advantage at sea, and what's going well in terms of Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard integration, and, you know, perhaps what a year now that it's been, uh, you know, in force, uh, what needs to be tweaked or what could be tweaked? Yeah, so I think it's important uh, as a taxpayer, as, as a citizen of the United States to understand that your armed forces are working together. And so the maritime component of that, of course, is the, uh, the Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard. Um, and our ability to be integrated with naval operations is critical. And I, I would tell you, I, I think, uh, step back and just kind of go off on a tangent here, um, I think we could justify a Coast Guard that's three or four times bigger than the current Coast Guard is. Uh, we've been roughly around 40,000 active duty members um, since World War II. And if you if you look back over history, uh, when we went to war in World War II, the Coast Guard grew from about 40,000 to about 170 or 180,000 wow. by the end of the war and then very quickly tapered back off to 40,000. Uh, but I, I've got a lot of Navy friends, a lot of Navy friends, and I've never met somebody that's been in command at the senior commander, captain, flag officer level that doesn't want more Coast Guard in their, in their mission space. Um, and just think about it from a carrier strike group perspective. If you can take a national security cutter, uh, so I'm, I'm a little rusty on my stats because it's, it's been about seven or eight years since I uh, left those six command. But if you had a national security cutter that was able to, to um, deploy with a carrier strike group, strike group commander can say, hey, Coast Guard cutter, go peel off and do this, you know, bilateral, multilateral exercise uh, to sharpen partners or to be able to uh, to go out on your own. Um, because your your range and endurance on those ships is phenomenal. Uh, you could probably sail around the world or close to sail around the world on on a on a tank of uh 
uh, fuel with that ship. And so obviously the faster you go, the more you, more you burn and the more you have to refuel. But it's, uh, those things are designed to operate independently, but they can also be a dependent part of a strike group. And so uh, we've been over in patrol forces Southwest Asia since uh, the early 2000s. I want to say 2003, 2004. And we've been an indispensable part of what uh, Fifth Fleet does and not a big surface combatant like uh, a cruiser destroyer. But when you're doing visit board search and seizure and you're uh, operating out there, I mean, that's really what the Coast Guard does and does well. I would also add one of the things I struggled with when I was. um, So my first Navy ship was the USS Vincennes uh, Aegis platform and uh, one of the old ones that's been decommissioned uh, since. And I was a fire control officer on that ship. And I I would get my Navy friends uh, would ask me often, what's the Coast Guard's main battery? You know, because that's typically when you're on a cruiser destroyer, something like that, you think in terms of what your main battery is and what your ability to engage in warfare is. And it took me a while to come to this conclusion, but I concluded that the Coast Guard's main battery is a boarding team. It's not a weapon. And the boarding team is the main battery because the boarding team has the legal authority to do almost anything in the maritime domain around the world. And so as long as I can deliver a boarding team to the platform that I'm trying to engage for whatever purpose, um, I'm able to I'm able to execute U.S. authorities. And then that becomes specialized. Uh, We have these things called the maritime security response teams and uh, in old special forces kind of lingo, these, these folks are trained as, as kind of a tier two force. And so uh, they're much more highly qualified than a standard Coast Guard boarding team. And so they do tactical vertical insertion, the fast roping. Uh, they do all different kinds of close quarters combat training uh, where a normal boarding officer on a, on a Coast Guard cutter might have 500 rounds of ammunition uh, down the barrel to remain proficient uh, in, in self-defense. Uh, the maritime security response team folks probably have 40 or 50,000 rounds of ammunition annually down the barrel to do close quarters combat. And so we've got these different capabilities uh, that are available to the Navy and, and available to maritime forces in general around the globe. No, that's a, a great point. Um... Uh, I, I was thinking, you know, you, you spoke a few minutes ago, you mentioned the 11 statutory missions that the Coast Guard has, uh, you, you know, those, what the Coast Guard is doing forward, uh, particularly in 5th Fleet and 7th Fleet, those VBSS missions, et cetera, the counter drug mission, those ones get a lot of attention. They get a lot of attention in our USNI news coverage and, and, and other news coverage. What are some of the things that Perhaps our listeners, uh, our, our Navy Marine Corps listeners or other listeners are, uh, are not so aware of that the Coast Guard does. Some of those other missions that um, are really foundational uh, to maritime security and to the, the, the commercial uh, shipping industry that don't get a lot of headlines. Yeah, I, I'm going to step back and give you a, a quick vignette, Bill, if I may. Um, sure. So one of my shipmates that I sailed in Vincennes with um, Actually, one of them still on active duty, Vice Admiral John Muston, who's the chief of the Naval Reserve. And so uh, John's a dear friend. But one, one of the other uh, shipmates who shall re- remain nameless uh, because I don't want to embarrass him. But we sailed together 
And then fast forward a couple of years, I was a lieutenant commander and I was the executive officer on the Coast Guard Cutter Thetis, a medium endurance cutter uh, home port in Key West, Florida. And he was uh, in command of a minesweeper at the time and he pulled into Key West. And I, so I invited him over to the wardroom for lunch. And uh, he came to the ship and I gave him a tour of the ship. And he looked at me at one point, almost in disbelief. And he goes, this is like a real ship. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of insulting. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, of course it's a real ship. And so um, I think maybe people come from, from their own backgrounds and their own understanding of what the Coast Guard is and, and don't have a deep appreciation many times for what the Coast Guard brings to the table. I think as we become more integrated with naval operations around the world over the years, people are, are much more familiar with what we do and how we do it now. But um, of those statutory missions, and, and I would argue that, you know, we, we say we have 11 statutory missions. I would argue that we actually have 12. Uh, when, you, when you look at the Coast Guard's Title 50 authorities and becoming a full member of the intelligence community back around 2000. And so ever since then, we've got, uh, you know, intelligence capabilities and cryptologic capabilities and all those sorts of things that, uh, that most people don't intuitively uh, default to understanding. Um, but when you think about maritime security, particularly in defense of the homeland, uh, the Coast Guard mindset is, is one of a layered defense. And it gets to the point that you talk about commercial shipping uh, foreign parts. Uh, post 9-11, we, we uh, came out with a 96-hour notice of arrival requirement. So if you're bringing a cargo into the United States, you have to check into the system, so to speak. Uh, the Coast Guard also has traveling port inspectors. So we, we visit ports around the globe. And if a ship departs from a foreign port and comes to the United States, we've had people on the ground inspecting the security of those facilities. Mm -hmm so that we can understand the risk that we're trying to operate with. And you're never going to be risk-free. But the idea here is that you want to understand risk, understand how to manage it and mitigate it where you can, right? And so um, we look at those sorts of things as a layered defense. And the first layer is uh, ports, port security inspection team that, that travels overseas and its partnerships with partner nations and partner governments that, that we have like interests uh, or other navies and coast guards around the world. And, and frankly, most of the navies around the world want to be more like a coast guard than they want to be like a United States Navy. And I, and I think that's an important distinction for your listeners as well. Um, the coast guard, while we're a pretty large Navy globally, I, I, I want to say we're 10th or 11th in, in terms of size of naval air and, and uh, sea forces. Um, our objective is not to be the Navy. We've got the world's best Navy in the United States Navy, and we've got the world's best Coast Guard in the United States Coast Guard, and they're not the same thing, and they're not focused on the same thing all the time. Yeah. Although, uh, if I were to visually depict it, I would say uh, there's a Venn diagram approach where things that the Coast Guard does for the Navy can be complementary and things that the Navy can do to be complementary to the Coast Guard. But the Coast Guard's never going to be engaged in strike warfare. We're just not. And so that's that's the Navy's exclusive purview. And so there are some high end capabilities uh, that the Navy has that the Coast Guard will never aspire to because it's just not in the Coast Guard's interest to do that. I don't think it's in the national interest. 
Yeah, if I could uh, just editorialize for a minute, since uh, retiring from the Navy in 2016 and then coming to the Naval Institute, where we are sea services, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and we do an annual Coast Guard issue. The August issue is always focused on the Coast Guard. We get a lot of submissions from Coast Guard authors. Our news team covers you know, what's happening in, in all the sea services. I've learned more about the Coast Guard in the past you know, six and a half years than I knew when I was on active duty. And I would I'd point out just a couple of things. One is it, it blows me away when I think about the fact that the Coast Guard is roughly 40,000 people, as you said, about the size of the New York City Police Department. So think about a force that's concentrated 40,000 people in just New York City and now put that force, you know, uh, spread that force all over the world to places from, you know, from New York to California, uh, from Bahrain to Hawaii, from the South China Sea to the Persian Gulf and missions as disparate as, you know, aids to navigation to rescuing people at sea to interdicting, you know, you know drugs, right? Uh, it's it's a pretty, it's an amazing thing. And I'm always kind of blown away when I think about that. And I try to, you know, picture how this group of people that's about the size of the New York City Police Department can do the, those global missions, 11 statutory missions. So uh, the other one, one I want to say, and I, I often will put this, uh, you know, in Twitter, and I did it recently, the Coast Guard's building some amazing ships right now. I'm a huge fan of the national security cutters, the offshore patrol cutters, the fast response cutters. And, you know, the Navy is, I think, struggling to get above 300 ships. I think anybody would agree with that. And there are some of those classes of ships that are on hot production lines. I think we could keep building and upgun them a little bit and make them into Navy ships. But that's, you know, Bill Hamlet's editorializing a little bit. And I, I shouldn't do too much of that, but I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of the Coast Guard. Uh, I wanted, we're running a little short on time, sir. I just wanted to ask, you know, you served on the editorial board of the Naval Institute, which is the heart and soul of the open forum, the heart and soul of proceedings and always had, has been. You served as the chair of the editorial board. Um, you've been a longtime member of the Naval Institute. You sponsor your company at the Coast Guard Academy with a sponsored student program. Just if you could talk a little bit about how the Naval Institute has factored in your career um, and, you know, maybe some of the things that you learned as, uh, you know, being on the editorial board of the Institute. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I, the, the Naval Institute's a fantastic organization. So, um, and thank you again for having me on the podcast today. Um, what I would tell you is I've, I've been, I've been a member of the Naval Institute since I was a Lieutenant junior grade, I, maybe as an ensign. Uh, and I can't remember how I first came across the Naval Institute, certainly Proceedings Magazine as a it's kind of a flagship publication. Um, I don't know that I've ever been in a wardroom that didn't have a proceedings magazine sitting on a table somewhere or in somebody's hands. And then over time, uh, you know, I, I made the decision to become a life member of the Naval Institute and uh, been a life Thank member you. for a, a number of years. Um, but I had a friend of mine and I've always been an intellectually curious person, uh, willing to be a little provocative at, at times in my thinking. And, um, I had a retired Coast Guard captain whom I had served with uh, at one point in my career invite me uh, to, to come kick the tires on the editorial board. And so uh, with that experience, I became a member of the editorial board. Wait, was that by any chance uh, Howie Thorson? No, it was not Admiral Thorson, but, um, but uh, I'm trying to 
trying to think who it was. I hope he's not online today. Because was it Everell Ames? Ames was Everell Ames was on the Ed board when I was uh, on the Ed board way back in the '90s, and he was just a tremendous gentleman. Yeah. Well, we we um, I came in um, and I just enjoyed the activity of the editorial board because you're you're really kind of wire brushing all the articles or proposed articles that are coming in to discern whether or not they they kind of meet the standard of, of uh, intellectual rigor and, and provocativeness and all the other things that you look for in a good article. And I think within three or four months, uh, our chair stepped down and we elected a new chair. And unbeknownst to me, somebody had nominated me to be the chair. And so uh, very shortly after getting on the board, I became the chairman of the editorial board. So I, I spent about two years, I think three years total on the editorial board, maybe two, two and a half as the chairman. Um, and I just enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the debate. I enjoyed the intellectual rigor that was put behind, uh, what goes into proceedings magazine. Um, I was encouraged, uh, personally to, uh, to write a few proceedings articles myself. And so that rigor, I think was really important for me, uh, as, as a career development tool. So uh, big fan of the Naval Institute and, and everything that you all are doing. Well, thanks for your service on the Ed Board and also for being a life member. Uh, much appreciated, sir. Uh, well, we are out of time now. Uh, we have time for you know one more. Any parting shots? Uh, oh, by the way, saved rounds uh, from you, Admiral? Yeah, I, I would tell you, you touched on it a little bit earlier. I, I ended up... Um, not by design. I ended up spending four years of my career on the National Security Council staff, and I and I served in a bunch of different positions, uh, culminating in being the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to the President. And um, my experience with the Coast Guard and the Navy and the Marine Corps in particular from that national perch is that we all fit into uh, many of our maritime problems in ways that uh, are are meaningful uh, to to achieve our desired national outcome and things that are in our national interest. And so um, that is not never a one and done sort of arrangement. I think we've got to continually sharpen the saw uh, so that we can be what our nation needs us to be uh, when they need us to be uh, ready. And so um, it's not a static problem set. It's a dynamic problem set. And uh, I'm just proud of all the Navy and Marine Corps and Coast Guard people I've served with over the years. So um, Thanks for letting me highlight that today, Bill. Well said. Thank you, sir. So my guest today has been Rear Admiral Doug Fears, U.S. Coast Guard, retired. Uh, he now lives on the eastern shore of Maryland and uh, looks like uh, looks like life's treating you pretty well, sir. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Bill. It's great, great to be with you today. All right. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year. Plans start as low as $20 a month. Learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. All right, well, that wraps another, up another show. If you enjoy it, Subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member at usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.